to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade-offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically minded decision maker, this podcast is for you. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Potlets. Today, we have an exciting show. It's myself on, Kalizia Campos. We have our usual guest hosts, Duffy Cooley, Olive Power, and Josh Rosso. We also have two special guests, Chris Umbel. Did I say that right, Chris? Close enough. I should have checked before. Umbel is good. Umbel. Yeah, I'm not even a native English speaker, so you have to bear with me. And Sean Anderson. Hi. You said my name perfectly. Thank you. <laughs> Yours is more standard American. Let's see. The topic of today is application modernization. Oh, I just found a word I cannot pronounce. I can add that to my non-pronounceable words list. Also known as application transformation, I think uh, those two terms correctly used alternatively, the experts in the house should, uh, should say something. Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily say that they're interchangeable. They're used interchangeably, I think, by the general population, though. Okay. So we're going to definitely dig into that. How does it not make sense to use them interchangeably? Because that's just by the meaning, I would think so. But I'm also not in that world day to day. And, and uh, Sean and Chris are. By the way, please give us a brief introduction, the two of you. Why don't you go first, Chris? Sure. So I am Chris Umbel. I believe it was probably actually pronounced Umbel in Germany, but I go with Umbel. My title this week is the, I think, .NET app, app transformation journey lead. And even though I, I focus on .NET modernization, it doesn't end there. Touch a little bit of everything for Pivotal. And I'm Sean Anderson, and I share the same title of the week as Chris, except for where you say .NET, I would say Java. But in general, we play the same role and have slightly different focuses, but there's a lot of overlap. And we get along, despite the .NET and Java thing. Usually. And you both are coming from Pivotal, yeah? And as most people should know, but I'm sure now everybody knows, Pivotal was just recently, as of this date, which is where we are, end of January. This episode is going to be a while to release, but Pivotal was just acquired by VMware. So here we are. It's good to be here. All right. So somebody, one of you, maybe let's say Chris, because you brought this up. How does application modernization differs from application transformation? Because I think we need to lay the ground and, and lay the definitions before we can go off and talk about things and sound like experts and make sure that everybody can follow us. Sure. I think you might even get different definitions, even from within our own practice, but I'll at least lay it out as I see it. And I think it's probably consistent with how, how Sean's going to see it as well, but it, it's what we tell customers anyway. And at the end of the day, there are, you know, app transformation is sort of the, the larger made a bucket. So that's going to include, say, just the rehosting of applications, taking applications from point A to some new point B without necessarily improving the state of the application itself. 
So we'd say that that's not necessarily an exercise in paying down technical debt. It's just making some change to an application or its environment. And then on the modernization side, that's when things start to get potentially a little more architectural. And, and that's when the focus becomes paying down technical debt and, and really improving the application itself, usually from an architectural point of view. And things start to look maybe a little bit more like rewrites at that point. So would you say that transformation is more in line with like replatforming the way that I might think about it? So we'd say that, that app transformation might include replatforming and also the modernization. What do you think of that, Sean? I would say transformation is not just the replatforming, rehosting, and modernization, but also the the practice to figure out which should happen as well. So there's a little bit more meta in there, but typically app transformation to me is the bucket of things that you need to do to move your product down the line. Very cool. So I have two questions before we start really digging into the show. Is still to lay, lay the ground for everyone. My Next question will be, are we talking about modernizing and transforming apps so they go to the clouds? Or is there a certain cutoff that we start thinking, oh, we need to things get done differently for them to be cloud native? Is there a differentiation or is, is just one is the same as the other? Like the process will be the same either way. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a distinction. And if you... The, the replatforming bucket, kind of that rehosting bucket of things, is where your target state, at least for us coming out of Pivotal, we had a, definitely a, a product focus where you know we're probably only going to be doing work if it intersects with our product, right? So we're going to be doing both replatforming targeted, say, typically at a, at a cloud environment, usually Cloud Foundry or something to that effect, and then modernization. While we're usually doing that with customers who've been running our platform, there's nothing to say that you necessarily need a cloud or any cloud to do modernization. We tend to based on who we work for, but you could say that those disciplines and practices really are agnostic to where things run. Sorry, I, I was muted. I, was, I wanted to ask Sean if he wanted to add to that. Do you have the same view? Yeah, I have the same view. And I, I think part of what makes our process unique that way is we're not necessarily trying to target a platform for deployment when we're going through the modernization part anyway. We're really looking at how can we design this application to be the best application it can be. And it just so happens that that tends to be more 12-factor compliant that is very cloud compatible, but it's not necessarily the way that we start trying to aim for a particular platform. All right. So if everybody allows me, just I will, after this next question, I will let all the other hosts speak too. <laughs> Sorry for monopolizing, but I'm so excited about this topic. So again, in the spirit of understanding what we're talking about, what do you define as legacy? Because that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking, definitely talking about a move up, a move forward. We're not talking about regression. We're not talking about scaling down. We're talking about moving up to a modern technology stack. So that means, that implies we're talking about something that's legacy. What is legacy? Is it contextual? Do we have a hard definition? Do we have, is there a best practice to follow? Is, is there something public people can look at? Okay, if my app or system fits this recipe, then it's considered legacy. Like a diagnosis that's, uh, that has a consensus. I can certainly tell you what, how you can't necessarily define legacy. One of the ways is by the year that it was written. 
you can certainly say that there are, are certainly shops who are writing legacy code today. They're still writing legacy code. As soon as they're done with a project, it's instantly legacy. There's people that have tried to define, like I know the Michael Feathers definition, which is, I think, any application that doesn't have tests. I don't know that that fits what you know, like our practice necessarily sees legacy as. But basically, anything that's occurred a significant amount of technical debt, regardless of when the application was written or conceived, kind of fits it into that legacy bucket. And really, our, our work isn't necessarily as concerned about whether something's legacy or not as much as, is there pain that we can solve with our practice? And like I said, we've modernize things that were, you know, for all intents and purposes, quite modern in terms of the year they were written. Yeah, and I, w- I would double down on the pain. So legacy to us often is something that was written as a prototype, you know, a year ago, and now it's ready to prove itself. It's going to be scaled up, but it wasn't built with scale in mind or something like that. So even though it may be the latest technology, it just wasn't built for the load, for example. And sometimes legacy can be the pain is we have applications on a mainframe and we can't find COBOL developers and we're leasing a giant mainframe and it's costing a lot of money, right? And and so there's different flavors of pain. And it also could be something as simple as, you know, a data center move, uh, something like that, where we've got, you know, all of our applications running on iron and we need to go to a virtual data center somewhere, whether it's cloud or on-prem. And each one of those to us is legacy. It's all about the pain. I think as miserable as that might sound, that's really where it starts and is is listening to that pain and hearing directly from customers what that pain is. And it sounds kind of terrible when you think about it, that you're always sort of in search of pain, but that is indeed what we do and, and try to alleviate that in some way. But that pain is sort of what dictates the solution that you come up with, because there are are certain kinds of pain that aren't going to be solved with, say, a modernization approach um, or a platforming approach even. You have to listen and make sure that you're applying the right medicine to the right pain. Seems like an interesting thing, bringing what you said, Chris, and then what you said earlier, Sean. Sean, you had mentioned the target platform doesn't necessarily matter, at least up front. And then, Chris, you had implied like, you know, bringing the right thing in to to solve the pain or to help remedy the pain to some degree. And I think what's interesting maybe about the perspectives for those on this call and you two is a lot of times our entry points are a lot more focused with infrastructure and platform teams where they have these objectives to solve like cost and ability to scale and so on and so forth. And it seems like your entry point, at least historically, is maybe a little bit more focused on finding pain points on more of the app side of the house. I'm wondering if that's a fair assessment or if you could speak to kind of how you find opportunities and what you're really targeting. I would say that's a that's a fair assessment from the perspective of our services team. We're mainly app focused, but it's almost like there's a two pronged approach where there's platform pain and application pain. And what we've seen is is often solving one without the other is not a great solution, right? And so I think that's where it's challenging because there's so much to know, right? There's it's hard to find one team or one one person who can point 
out the pain on both sides. And, and so it just depends on often how the customer approaches us. You know, if they're saying something like we have, we're a credit card company and we're getting our butts kicked by this other company because they can do biometrics and we can't yet because of the limitations of our application, then we would approach it from the app first perspective. But if it's another pain point where our operations, day two operations is really suffering, we can't scale where we have issues that the platform is really good at solving, then we may start there. But it always tends to kind of merge together in the end. You might be surprised how much variety there is in terms of the drivers for people coming to us. There are a lot of cases where the work came to us by way of the platform work that we've done. So it started with sort of our our sister team who focuses on the platform side of things. They solved the infrastructure problems ahead of us, and then we sort of closed things out on the application side. But we, if, if our account teams and our organization is really listening to each individual customer, you know, you'll find that, that the pain is drastically different, right? There are some cases where the driver is cost. And that's an easy one to understand. There are also drivers that are usually like a date, such as this data center goes dark on this date and I have to do something about it. If I'm not out of that data center, then my apps no longer run. And the solution to that is very different than the solution you would have to, look, my application is difficult for me to maintain. It takes me forever to ship features. Help me with that. You know, there's two very different solutions to those problems, but each of which are things that come our way. It's just that former probably comes in by way of our platform team. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting space to operate in, in the application transformation and stuff. And I've seen entities within some of the larger companies that represent sort of this field as well. And sometimes that's called production engineering, or there are a few other examples of this that I'm aware of. I'm curious how, how you all, how you see that happening within large companies. Like, do you, do you find that there's like a particular size entity that is actually striving to do this work with the tools that they have internally? Or do you find that typically that typically most companies are just kind of need something like an application transformation team to come in and help them figure this part of it out? I think there's, we've seen a wide variety, I think. And one of them is maybe a, a company really has a commitment to get to the cloud and they get a platform and then they start putting some simple apps up just to, to learn how to do it. And then they get stuck with, okay, now how do we with trust get some workloads that are running our business on it? And they will often bring us in at that point because they haven't done it before, right? And, and so experimenting with something that valuable to them is usually means that they kind of slow down. And there's other, other times where we've come in to modernize applications, whether it's a, a particular business unit, for example, that may have been trying to get off the mainframe for the last two years and they smart people, but they kind of get stuck again because they haven't figured out how to do it. But what often happens, and Chris can talk about some examples of this, is once we help them figure out how to modernize or the recipes to follow to start getting their systems systematically onto the platform and modernize, that they tend to like forming a competency area area around it, right? Where they'll they'll start to staff it with the people who are really interested and they kind of take over where we started from. There might be a little bit of a bias to that response in that like typically in order to 
even get in the door with us, you're probably a Fortune 100 or at least a 500 or government or, or something to that effect. So, you know, we're going to be seeing people that one, have a mainframe to begin with, and two, would have, say, you know, capacity to fund, say, a dedicated transformation team or, or to build a unit around that. And you could say that the smaller an organization gets, maybe the easier it is to just have the entire organization just write software the modern way to begin with. But at least at the, the large side, we do tend to see people try to build a they'll use different names for it, but try to have a, a dedicated center of excellence or practice around modernization. And, you know, our hope is to help them build that and hopefully put them in a position that that can eventually disappear because eventually you should no longer need that as a separate discipline. I think that's an interesting point. And like for me, I argue that you do need it going forward because of the cognitive overhead between understanding how your application is going to is going to thrive on today's complex um, infrastructure models and understanding how to write code that works. And I think that having one person that has all of that in their head all the time is like a little too much, it's a little too far to go sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's probably true. And, and when you consider the size of the portfolios and the size of the backlog for modernization that people have, I mean, there's people that are going to be busy on that for a very long time anyway. So you know, it's either, even if it is finite, it still has a very long lifespan at a minimum. And at a certain point, it becomes like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. As soon as you finish, you have to start again because of technology changes or business needs and that sort of thing. So it's probably a, a very dynamic kind of organization, but there's a lot of overlap. So the, you know, the pioneering teams set a lot of the uh, guidelines for how the following teams can be doing their modernization work. And it just keeps rolling down the track that way. So it may be that people are busy modernizing applications off of WebLogic or WebSphere, and it takes a two years or, or more to get that completed for this enterprise, but it was, you know, 20, 50 different projects, and to them, it was brand new each time, which is kind of cool, actually, to come into that. I'm curious. I'd definitely love to hear from Olive, but I have one question, one more question before I pass it to Olive, because I think I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, all of this. But the, the question I have is, when you're going through your day-to-day -day working on .NET and, dot, and Java applications and helping people figure out how to go about modernizing them, what we've talked about so far is that that represents some of the deeper architectural issues and stuff. You've already mentioned 12-factor and like being able to kind of move or thinking about sort of the way that you frame the application as far as like inputs and those things that it takes to configure or to think about the lifecycle of those things. Are there some other common patterns that you see across the two practices, Java and .NET, that you think are just concrete examples of stuff that people should take away maybe from, from this episode that they could look at their application to try to get ahead of the game a little bit? I would say a big part of the commonality that Chris and I both work on a lot is we we have a methodology called the SWIFT methodology that we use to to help discover how the applications really want to behave, you know, define a notional architecture that is, again, agnostic of the implementation details. So we'll often come in with a, uh, you know, the same process and I don't need to be a .NET expert in a .NET shop to figure out how the system really wants to be designed, how you want to, you know, break things into microservices and then the implementation becomes 
knows where those details are. And Chris and I both kind of collaborate on a lot of that work. And it makes you feel a little bit better about the output when you know that, you know, it's it, the technology isn't as important. You get to actually pick which technology fits the solution best as opposed to, you know, starting with a technology and letting a solution form around it. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I'd, I'd say the interesting thing is just how difficult it is while we're going through the SWIFT process with customers to get them to not get terribly attached to the nouns of the technology and the solution. They've usually gone in where it's it's not just a matter of the language, but they have something picked in their head already for data storage, for messaging, et cetera. And they're deeply attached to some of these decisions, deeply and emotionally attached to them. And fundamentally, when we're designing a notional architecture, as we call it, really, you should be making decisions on what nouns you're going to pick based on that architecture to use the tools that fit that. That's a bit of a that's generally a bit of a process the customers have to go through. It's difficult for them to do that because the more technical their stakeholders tend to be, often the more attached they are to the individual technology choices. And breaking that is a principal role for us. So is there any help or any investment or any sort of coordination with those the vendors or the purveyors of the technologies that perhaps legacy applications are or indeed the platforms they're running on? Is there any help on that side from those vendors to help with application transformation or making those applications better? Or do organizations have to rely on a completely independent sort of team like like you guys to come in and help them with that? Do you understand my point? Is there any sort of internal, like you mentioned, WebLogic, WebSphere, do the the purveyors of those sort of platforms kind of try and drive the transformation from, from within there? Or is it like organizations who are running those apps have to rely on independent companies like you or like us to to help them with that. I think some of it depends on what the goal of the modernization is. If it's if it's something like we no longer want to pay Oracle licensing fees, then of course obviously they or you know WebLogic teams aren't going to be happy to help. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it's a case where you know we may have a lot of WebLogic. We it's working fine, but we just don't like where it's deployed, and we'd like to containerize it, move it to Kubernetes or something like that. In that case, they're more willing to help. But at least in my experience, I've found that the technology vendors, you know, are rightfully kind of focused just on upgrading things from their perspective. And, and they want to own the world, right? You know, WebLogic will say, hey, we can do everything. We have clustering. We have messaging. We've got good access to data stores. And it's hard to find you know, a technology vendor that has kind of that broader vision or the discipline to not try to fit their solutions into the problem when maybe they're not the best fit. I think it's a broad generalization, but, you know, specifically on the Java side, it seems that at least with, you know, app server vendors, the status quo is usually serving them quite well. So quite often we're sort of adversarial, a bit of an adversarial relationship with them on occasion. But I could certainly say that within the .NET space, we've worked relatively collaboratively with Microsoft on things like Steeltoe, which is, I wouldn't say it's a Spring Boot analog, but at least a microservice library that helps people achieve 12-factor cloud nativeness. And that's something where, you know, I guess Microsoft represents both the legacy side, but also the future side. And, and we're sort of part of a solution together there. 
And actually, that's a good point because the other way that we're seeing vendors be involved is, you know, in creating like operators on Kubernetes side or Cloud Foundry tiles, you know, something that makes it easy for their system to still be used in the in the new world. And that's definitely helpful as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So recently, myself and some people on my team went through a training from both Sean and Chris, interestingly enough, in Colorado about this thing called the SWIFT methodology. And I know it's kind of a really important methodology to how you approach some of the application transformation-like engagements. Could you two kind of give us a high-level overview of what that methodology is? I want to hear Chris go through it since I always answer that question first. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So I I figured since you were the inventor, you might want to go with it, Sean, but I'll give it a stab anyway. So Swift is a series of exercises that we use to go from a business problem into what we call a notional architecture for an application. And the one thing that you'll hear Sean say all the time that I think is pretty apt, which is we're trying to understand how the application wants to behave. So this is a very analog process, especially at the beginning. It's one where we get people who can speak about the business problem behind an application and the business processes behind an application. We get them into a room, a relatively large room typically with a bunch of wall space, and we go through a series of exercises with them where we kind of tease the that business process apart. And we start with a relatively lightweight version of Alberto Brandolini's event storming method, where we map out with the subject matter experts what all of the business events that occur in a system are. And that is a non-technical exercise, a completely non-technical exercise. As a matter of fact, all of this uses sticky notes and kind of arts and crafts. But after we've gone through that process, we transition into Boris Diagram, which is an exercise of Sean's design that we take the domains that we've, uh, or at least like service candidates that we've extrapolated from that event storming and start to draw out a notional architecture. So like an 80% idea of what we think the architecture is going to look like. And we're going to do this for slices of, uh, thin slices of that business problem. And at that point, it starts to becoming something that a software developer might be interested in. And we have an exercise called Snappy that generally occurs occurs concurrently, which translates that sort of message flow Boris diagram kind of thing into something that's at least a little bit closer to what a a developer could act upon. But again, these are sticky note and analog exercises that generally go on for about a week or so, things that we do interactively with customers to try to get a purely non-technical way, at least at first, so that we can understand that problem and tell you what an architecture is that you can then act on. And we try to position this as, you know, customer, you already have all of the answers here. What we're going to do as facilitators of these is try to pull those out of your head. You just don't know how to get to the truth, but you already know that truth. And we're going to design this architecture together. How did I do, Sean? That was, I couldn't have said it better myself. I would say one of the interesting things about this process is the reason why it was developed the way it was is because in the world of technology and especially engineers, I, I've 
definitely seen that you have two modes of thought when you come from the the business world to the you know to the technical world and often engineers will approach a problem in a very different way in a very focused kind of blinded way than business folks. And ultimately, what we try to think of is that the purpose for the software is to enable the business to run well. And in order to do that, you really need to understand, at least at a high level, what the heck is the business doing? And surprisingly, and almost consistently, the engineering team doing the work is separated from the business team enough that it's like playing the telephone game, right? Where the business folks say, well, I told them to do this and the technical team's like, oh, awesome. Well, then we're going to use all of this amazing technology and build something that really doesn't support you. And so this process really brings everybody together to discover how the system really wants to behave, but also kind of as a side effect, you get everybody agreeing that, yes, that is the way it's supposed to be. And it's exciting to see teams come together that actually never even work together. And you see the light bulbs go on and say, oh, that's why you do that. And the end result is in a week, we can go from nobody really knows each other or quite understands the system as a whole to we have a backlog of work that we can prioritize based on the learnings that we have and feel pretty comfortable that the end result is going to be pretty close to how we want to get there. And then the biggest challenge is defining how do we get from point A to point B. And that's that's part of that layering of the SWIFT method is knowing when to ask those questions. And a micro follow-up, and then I'll keep my mouth shut for a little bit. Is there a place that people could go online to read about this methodology or, or just get some ideas of what you just described? Yeah, you can go to swiftbird.us, and that has kind of a high-level overview of you know more of the public facing of, of how the methodology works. And then there's also internal resources that are constantly being developed as well. So that's where I would start. That sounds really neat. And as always, we're going to have links on the show notes for all of this. I checked out the website for the event storming book, and there is a resources page there and it has a list of a bunch of presentations. Sounds very interesting. I wanted to ask <laughs> Chris and, and Sean, have you ever seen or heard of a case where a company went through the transformation or modernization process and then they rolled back to their legacy system for any reason? That's that's actually a really good question, and it implies that often the way people think about modernization would be more of a you know a big bang approach, right? Where at a certain point in time we switch to the new system, and if it doesn't work, then we roll back. But part of what we try to do is have incremental releases where we're actually putting small slices into production, where you're not rolling back a whole you know, from modern back to legacy, it's more of you have a week's worth of work that's going into production that's for one of the thin slices, like Chris mentioned. And if that doesn't work, or there's something that is is unexpected about it, then you're rolling back just a small chunk. But you're not really jumping off a cliff for modernization. You're really taking baby steps. And if, you, if it's a two-step forward and one step back, you're still making a lot of really good progress. And, and you're also gaining confidence as you go that in the end, in two years, you're going to have a completely shiny new modern system. And you're comfortable with it because you're getting there an inch at a time as opposed to taking a big leap. 
I think what's interesting about a lot of large organizations is that they've been so used to doing Big Bang releases in general. This goes from software to even process changes in their organizations. They become so used to that that it often doesn't even cross their mind that it's possible to do something incrementally. So we really do oftentimes have to get you know, spend time buy, you know, getting buy-in from them on that kind of approach. You'd be surprised that even in industries that you'd think would be fantastic with managing risk, when you look at how they actually deal with deployment of software and the rolling out of software, they're oftentimes taking approaches that maximize their risk. And there's no way to make something riskier than by doing a big bang. But as Sean mentioned, the specifics of Swift are to find a way so that you can understand where and get a roadmap for how to carve out incremental slices so that you can strangle a large monolithic system slowly over time. And that's something that's pretty powerful. And once someone gets bought in on that, they absolutely see the value because they're minimizing risk. They're, they're, They're making small changes that are easy to roll back one at a time. You, know, you might see people who would stop somewhere along the way, and, and we wouldn't necessarily say that that's a problem, right? Like not just like not every app needs to be modernized. Maybe there's portions of systems that could stay where they are. And is that a bad thing? I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it is. Maybe, maybe that's the way that the best way for that organization. It's neat. We've, we've bumped into this idea now a couple of different times, and I think that both Chris and, and Sean have, have brought this up. It's kind of like a little prelude to a show that we are planning on doing. One of the operable quotes from that show is, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, it is the illusion of knowledge. It's a quote by Stephen Hawking. And it speaks exactly to that, right? When you come to a problem with a solution in your mind, that it's frequently difficult to understand the problem on its merit, right? right. <laughs> so it's, it's, really, it's really interesting seeing that kind of crop up again in this show. I think even even oftentimes the advantage of a very discovery-oriented method such as Swift is that, that it allows you to kind of start from scratch with a problem set with people maybe that you, you aren't familiar with and don't have some of that baggage and can ask the dumb questions to get to some of the real answers. It's, it's another phrase that I know Sean likes to use is that our roles as facilitators of this method are to ask dumb questions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you just can't put enough value on that, right? Like that's the only way that you're going to break that established thinking is by asking questions at the root. Um, one question, actually, there was something recently that happened in the Kubernetes community, which I thought was pretty interesting, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it, which is that Istio, which is a project that operates as a service mesh, I'm sure you all are familiar with it, has recently decided to kind of unmodernize itself in a way. It was originally developed as a set of microservices, and they had had kind of no end of difficulty in getting in optimizing the, the different interactions between those services and the and the nodes. And then recently they decided, you know, this might be a good example of, of when to monolith versus when to microservice. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, or if you have or familiarity with it. What's actually quite, I'm not going to necessarily speak too much to this. Time will tell as to if the, the monolithing that they're doing at the moment is appropriate or not. But Quite often, the starting point for us isn't necessarily a monolith. What it is, is a proposed architecture coming from a customer that they're proud of, that this is my microservice design. And, you know, you'll see a simple system with, you know, maybe hundreds of of nano services. And the surprise that they have is that the recommendation from us coming out of our Swift sessions 
is that actually you're, you're overthinking this. We're going to take that idea that you have anyway and maybe shrink that down into, say, tens of services or just a handful of services. And I think one of the mistakes that people make within enterprises around microservices at the moment is to say, well, that's not a microservice. It's too big. Well, how big or, or how small dictates a microservice, right? Oftentimes, we, at least conceptually, are taking and combining services based on the customer's architecture very commonly. And monoliths aren't necessarily bad. I mean, people use them almost as a pejorative, oh, you have a monolith. And in our world, it's like, well, monoliths are bad when they're bad, right. you know, and if they're not bad, then then that's great. And, it, and the corollary to that is microservicing for the sake of microservicing isn't necessarily a good thing either. And so when we go through the, like the Boris exercise, really what we're doing is we're showing how domain-based or capabilities relate to each other. And that happens to map really well, in our opinion, to, you know, first cut microservices, right? You know, you may have an order service or a customer service that kind of manages some of that. But just because we map those capabilities and how they relate to each other doesn't mean the implementation can't even be as a single monolith, but componentized inside it, right? And and that's part of what we try really hard to do is avoid the, the religion of monoliths versus microservices or even having to spend a lot of time trying to define what a microservice is to you. It's really more of, well, a system kind of wants to behave this way. So now, surprise, you just did domain-driven design and mapped out some good 12-factor compliant microservices should you choose to build it that way. But there's other constraints that always apply at that point. So is there more traction in organizations implementing this methodology on a kind of a net new business rather than uh, current running businesses or applications? Is there like situations more so, you know, that you have seen where a new project or a new sort of functionality within a business starts to drive and implement this methodology and then it sort of creeps through the other lines of business within the organization because, you know, that first one was successful? I'd say that based on kind of the nature of who our customers are as an app transformation practice, based on who those customers are and what their problems are, we're generally used to having a starting point of a process or software that exists already, but there's nothing at all to mandate that it has to be that way. As a matter of fact, we've, with folks from our labs organization, we've used these methods in what you could probably call greener fields. At the end of the day, you know, when you have a process or even a candidate process, something that doesn't exist yet, as long as you can get those ideas onto sticky notes and onto a wall, this is a very valid way of getting, you know, turning ideas into an architecture and an architecture into software. And we've seen that happen in practice a couple times where maybe a piece of the methodology was used, like event storming, just to get a feel for how the business wants to behave. And then to rapidly try something out, it may be more of an evolutionary architecture approach, right? MVP approach to let's just build something from a from a user perspective just to, to solve this problem and then try it out. And if it starts to catch hold, then iterate back and now drill into it a little bit more and say, all right, now we know this is going to work. So we're kind of modernizing something that may be two weeks old just because, hooray, we proved it's it's valuable. But we didn't necessarily have to spend as much upfront time on designing that as we would in a system that's already proven itself to be of business value. Okay. And kind of, this might be a bit bit of a broad question, but what, but what sort of defines success 
of projects like this. I mean, we mentioned earlier about cost and maybe some of the drivers are to, to move off certain mainframes and things like that. But if you're undergoing a, an application transformation, it seems to me like it's an ongoing thing. How do enterprises try to evaluate that return on investment? You know, How does it relate to success criteria? I mean, faster release times, et cetera, potentially might be one, but how is that typically evaluated and somebody internally saying, look, we are running a successful project? I think part of what we try to do up front is identify what the objectives are for you know a particular engagement and often those objectives start out with one thing right you know it, it's too costly to keep paying IBM or Oracle for weblogic or websphere but as we go through and talk through what types of things that we can solve those objectives get added to right so it may be the first thing our primary objective is we need to start moving workloads off of the mainframe or workloads off of weblogic or websphere or you know something like like that but there's other objectives that are part of this too which you know can include things as as interesting as developer happiness right they have a large team of 150 developers that are really just getting sick of doing the same old thing and having new technology that's actually a success criteria maybe down the road a little bit but it's it's more of a, a nice to have but kind of in the, you know long-winded answer of saying when we start these and when we incept these projects we usually start out with Let's talk through what our objectives are and how we measure success, those key results for those objectives. And as we're iterating through, we keep measuring ourselves against those. And sometimes the objectives change over time, which is fine because you learn more as you're going through it. But part of that incremental iterative process is measuring yourself along the way as opposed to waiting until the end. Yeah, makes sense. You know, I guess these projects kind of, as you say, are continuous and constantly sort of self-adjusting and self analyzing to kind of reevaluate success criteria as you go along. So yeah, so that that's interesting. And one other interesting note, though, that personally, we like to measure ourselves when we see one project is moving along. And if the customers start to form other projects that are similar, then we know, okay, great, it's taking hold. And now other teams are starting to do the same thing. And we've become the cool kids and people want to be like us. But the only reason it happens for that is when you're able to show success, right? And then other teams want to be able to replicate that. You know, the customer's OKRs, oftentimes they can be a little bit easier to understand. Sometimes they're not, but typically they involve time or money where I'm trying to take release times from X to Y or decrease my spend on X to Y. But the way that, that we sort of, I think, measure ourselves as a team is around how clean do we leave the, the campsite when we're done? We want the customers to be able to to run with this and to continue to do this work and to be experts. As much as we'd love to take money from someone forever, we have a lot of people to help, right? So our goal is to help build that practice and center of excellence and, and expertise within an organization so that you know, as they're goals or ideas change, you know, they have a, a team to help them with that. So we can ride off into the sunset and go help other customers. We are coming up at, to the end of the episode, unfortunately, because this has been such a great conversation. And it turned out to be a, more of an interview style, and which was great. It was great getting the chance to pick your brains, Chris and Sean. And going along with the interview format, I would like to ask you, is there any question that wasn't asked, but you wish was asked? So 
The intent here is to illuminate what this process for us and for people who are listening, especially people who they might be in pain, but they might be thinking this is just normal. That's an interesting one. And I guess to some degree that pain kind of is unfortunately normal. That's just unfortunate. But, you know, our role is to help solve that. And I think the complacency is the absolute worst thing in an organization. If there is pain, you know, rather than saying that the solution won't work here, let's start to talk about solutions to that. And, you know, we've seen customers of all shapes and sizes, and no matter how large or or cumbersome that might be. We've seen a lot of big organizations make great progress. And if your organization's in pain, you can use them as an example. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And it's usually not a train. Right. Usually not. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, I think you asked all the questions that we always try to convey to customers of, you know, how we do things, what is modernization. There's probably a little bit about replatforming, you know, doing the bare minimum to get something onto Uh, you know, onto the cloud. We didn't talk a lot about that, but it's a little bit less meta anyway. It's it's more technical and more recipe driven. As you discover what the workload looks like, it's more about, you know, is it something we can easily do a CF push or just create a container and, you know, move it up to the cloud with minimal changes? And there's not conceptually not a lot of complexity implementation wise. There's still a lot of challenges there too but uh, they're not as fun to talk about for me anyway. So Maybe that's a good excuse to have some of our colleagues back on here with you. Absolutely. Yeah, in a previous episode, we talked about persistence and state and those sorts of things and how they relate to your applications and how when you're thinking about replatforming and even you know just where you're planning on putting those applications, that's where for, uh, for us that question comes up quite a lot. Like that's kind of almost step zero, trying to figure out the state model and those sorts of things. That episode was named States in Stateless Apps, I think. So we are at the end, unfortunately. It was so great having you both here. Thank you, Duffy, Sean, Chris, and I'm going by the order. I'm seeing people on my video. Josh and Olive, until next time, make sure, please, to let us know your feedback. Subscribe. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a like. You know the drill. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Bye, everybody. Bye, all. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter at The Podlets and on the podlets.io website. That is The Podlets all together, where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing. Bye.